0: Our student pastor, Jace Thomas, would be preaching this morning, and I just want to clear up any confusion there may be in the room. That is me. I am Jace Thomas, and this has been the issue over the last couple months. Uh, I could have just shaved my head, or I could have grown a beard, but I did both. And I've just got to tell you, over the last six or seven weeks, I've gotten uh, more double takes, more people asking me about a new staff member, more confused looks. And I even said this in first service, and I promise you, I had a lady come up to me after service and said, I am so glad you told me that was you today. So uh, just so you know, I'm Jace. I've been here for four years. Love you guys. Excited to be here. We're going to be in Romans 14 this morning, and we're going to talk about something that uh, I have been learning personally, and uh, something I've kind of been on a journey myself over the last couple years, and I believe when we get to the end of this, the reason I'm sharing this with you is because there are some real uh, gospel implications for our church if we get this right. And that's that's conflict. We're going to talk about managing conflict this morning. Now, this past December, uh, me and my wife Macy celebrated nine years of marriage, which is not the longest time. Some of y'all have been married a real long time, but we're close to double digits. We're close to double digits. And when we first got married, you know... I, I'll just say this, for everyone in the room, you probably grew up and learned how to handle conflict uh, from your family, from your parents. You watched, and whether you realized or not, you were learning how to deal with things the way they learned how to deal with things, right? And when I got into marriage, I realized really quickly uh, how I learned it. it, and it wasn't always the right way. And it turns out when you move in with somebody, even if you've been dating for years, you really don't know each other until you're married and trapped in the same house together. And so early on, you realize, oh man, uh, I've, I've clearly frustrated my spouse, or I've made them angry, or I've annoyed them. And you're not sure why. You don't know what you did. Okay? So this is the first little bit. Then at the next phase of marriage, you you realize what some of those things are. And so you recognize, oh, this is what I did that maybe frustrated them, or this is uh, their pet peeve, or this is what I said or did to annoy them, or, or whatever. And so then you try not to do those things. And then you reach a, a new phase after that, where you know the things that drive them crazy, and sometimes still choose to do it. Now, my grandparents uh, have been married, not for nine years, but for around 63, 64 years. So they hopefully have this thing figured out, Right. Uh, I have a mama and a pawpaw. We got any mamaws and pawpaws in the house today? I love a good mama and pawpaw. My mama and pawpaw are everything to me, okay? My pawpaw uh, basically showed me what it was like to be a godly man. He would pick me up from school most days, take me to Taco Bell, really exciting. Uh, he's the man that taught me that you're supposed to eat a bowl of Blue Bell ice cream every night before you go to bed. My mama is a fierce woman who will do anything to protect you, and she speaks her mind. And here's what I love about them. They love each other deeply. And I I grew up watching them love each other. I I grew up watching them learn how to best serve each other and lead each other and, and love each other. And I watched them growing up learn how to lead our family through a lot of conflict and hard situations. I watched both of them serve in the church where I grew up, and so I saw how important their, their faith was to their marriage and their love for one another, and any despite anything they were going through. My mama was a greeter on Sundays at church, she'd hug my neck every Sunday. My my papa was a, a deacon emeritus, which just means you're a deacon forever. Uh, he was on my ordination council when I was ordained as a as a pastor, just like really special stuff. And and so they, there's a lot about their marriage that I I want to learn from. And I'll just tell you this, I've never told them this before, but they're getting older, and I know there's going to be a day where they're not here anymore. And so a few years ago, I started saving voicemails from my grandparents when they would call me. Sometimes I wouldn't even answer because I just wanted to have a voicemail from them, and I'd call them back afterwards. And a few years ago, I got a, a voicemail uh, from my papa, and call me back, and then he thought he hung up the phone. It was about a five or six minutes long voicemail. So I was just curious. I'm like, maybe I can get some insight on how to do marriage well, how how to relate to one another, how to handle conflict. And a couple minutes in of silence, I heard some moving around in the kitchen and, and from the back of the room, I heard my mama and she called out and she said, you know, my, my papa's last name is shell. She calls him shell. She called out and she said, shell, I told you to stop picking at that thing on your head. And my pawpaw responded and said, it's my head. I can pick at it if I want to. And I learned a really important lesson that day. I learned that how we manage conflict and how we learn to deal with conflict, this is a lifelong endeavor. Now, I've been learning some things the last couple of years, and the scripture has been Teaching me some things, and the Lord's been leading me through some really hard situations and, and at the end of the day, here's what I need you to understand. student ministry most often is a student coming to me and saying, "This is an issue I'm dealing with with another person." and I try and pray for them and guide them where, and then this is usually what happens. They say, "Great, now go talk to them about it." And I, and I believe, church, that this passage we're going to read in Romans 14 today. It's going to be helpful for us, not just in how we deal with conflict in the church, but there are real gospel implications that we need to learn today. We are praying for people to be saved. And I think this is the way that we get there. Now, before I read to you the first 12 verses of Romans 14, that's where we're going to be. There are two verses towards the end of chapter 14 that are actually really key for us to understand those first 12 verses. I want to read them to you. The first one is Romans 14, verse 19, and it says this. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. That's the first one. Pursue peace. The second verse is the very last one in Romans 14. It says this, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, two really important concepts that I'm sure you've heard as a Christian. Peace and faith. But when we put things, these things together, they help us understand the heart of this passage in those first 12 verses of Romans 14. I'm just going to go ahead and spoil it for you. I'm going to go ahead and tell you what this whole thing's about, okay? We, we take peace, we take faith, and this helps us understand the heart of the message today, all right? And here it is. Our ability to have honest conversation in the pursuit of peace is a direct reflection of our faith in a sovereign God. Let me say it for you one more time. Our ability... To have honest conversation in the pursuit of peace is a direct reflection of our faith in a sovereign God. I mean, I really want you to know this. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. And here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say a couple words and you're going to repeat after me. And we're really going to get this in our hearts and our heads before we read this passage. Here we go. Our ability. There we go. To have an honest conversation in the pursuit of peace is a direct reflection Of our faith in a sovereign God. Y'all are so good. That was great. Now, I've told you what the heart of this message is. So let's read these verses and start to understand what God's teaching us. It says this in verse 1. As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now I've told you what this passage is about. We're going to talk about our ability to have honest conversations with each other. But as we read through this, we're going to see some arguments that Paul's making, and they're going to provide a couple things. Because we've got to figure out, how do we have these honest conversations with one another? I mean, we're talking specifically about other believers in the church. When there's conflict, or disagreements, or or, or uh, differing opinions, or thoughts, how do we handle that well? Well, this passage is going to provide us with two guardrails that kind of keep us moving in the right direction. And it's also going to provide us with a specific approach to take and how we have those honest conversations with one another. But before we talk about those guardrails and the right approach, we've got to understand exactly what the conflict is that's taking place in this church. And we see that conflict in the first two verses and then in verse 5. Let me read them to you. It says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions one person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Then in verse five, it says, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, we have a conflict here, okay? And it seems probably pretty important, but what we have to remember about this conflict before we even start to tear it apart and figure out what's the best way to do this, is that there does seem to be a right answer and a wrong answer in this. When, when Paul describes the conflict, he describes one group of people as being of stronger faith and another group of people of being weaker faith. But Paul's not exhorting these people and saying, okay, so you guys need to change how you feel and you guys are right and the conflict's settled. That's not what's happening here. So just know as we read this, I agree with the people on the stronger side and you may too. But that's not the point. So here's the conflict. Paul says that one person believes he can eat anything. So you have a group of believers who are of a Gentile background. And then you have another group of believers who feel they must abstain from, ve- or they must eat only vegetables. This is the Jewish background believer. There's conflict. One group of people says, I can eat whatever I want to. The other group of people says, No, you can't. We should only eat this. And not only that, the, the argument extends into another area. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. So the person who says, no, we should be able to eat whatever we want to eat is saying, oh, okay, also, well, we're, not, we, we're not beholden to any, any specific holidays or Sabbath days or anything like that. If we want to rest, we rest. While the other person saying, no, uh, we can only eat this, and we have to follow this strict calendar. Now, the problem is the person on the weaker side that's saying, no, we can't eat everything we want and we do need to follow this schedule and this routine and this calendar is still living in some ways under the law. And so the person on the stronger side is saying, no, we've been freed from that. Now, this is a real conflict. This is an understandable conflict. You see why each side feels the way they do and a lot of it has to do with their own context, their own background, where they came from. So now the question is, What is the right way to deal with this conflict? Everyone involved, they're all believers, they're all Jesus followers, so what's the right way? Well, the scriptures begin to give us some ways to deal with this, and so we land on the first guardrail. We see this in verse 3 and 4, and then in verse 10, this is what it says. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And in verse five, it says one person esteems all days alike. Sorry, verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or why do you despise your brother? So we're seeing two reactions here on, on one side. The people who are abstaining from food are looking across the aisle. The people who are eating whatever they want to. And the scripture says that they're judging them. They're saying, oh, you, you must be in sin because of what you're doing. You know, they're shouting across the aisle, and they're saying, hey, liberal, think you can do whatever you want to, not so fast. But on the other side, Paul admonishes the, the stronger of the faith who are saying, hey, and look at what you're doing. You're, you're despising the people who think they can't eat whatever they want to. You're mocking them. You're looking at them and going, look how legalistic you are. You're missing the gospel completely. Now, these might be familiar arguments. But what we're learning in this first guardrail is this. You ready? Here it is. Our judgment is limited. Our judgment's limited. Now, when we have any kind of disagreement, any kind of conflict, things are said. Maybe there's tension. Maybe it's heated. Maybe it's not. But every time we walk away, and usually all we have for ourselves is our own head to make judgments about the other person. And what usually happens? We walk away, and despite our limited judgment, meaning we don't know everything, we don't see everything, we don't see that person's heart, we don't know what's going on in their head, we don't know all their circumstances. Despite our limited judgment, we have something else. We have an unlimited imagination, don't we? And so we walk away from conflicts, and we start to like fill in all the gaps of that conversation. We start going, oh, they said this, but they really meant that. And I know they told me this, but this is probably what they were trying to do there. You know, I see the game that they're playing. And then we say, you know what? And they probably left that place, left that conversation, left that disagreement. And they're probably just living however they want to. And they're not following Jesus. They're not trying to do the right thing like I am. I must care more than they do. I must love Jesus more than they do. Or we get really paranoid. And we start to imagine and think about all the conversations they're having with all the other people about us and what we said and who we are and what we did. Man, that shapes how we treat that person. It it causes us to take a very specific posture, a defensive posture. Now, remember, we were told to pursue peace. But what often happens is very similar to what happened in the Garden of Eden. Think about this. This is, this is, how, we, this is how we've always managed conflict, right? This is our, our, our natural instinct. Adam and Eve eat the fruit. They do the thing, the one thing that God told them not to do, and so they've sinned and they've disobeyed. Now they're in conflict with God. What do they do? They don't run to him. They don't go to the one person who could probably help. They don't go to the one person that they sinned against. They don't go to the one person that they need to deal th- with this with. No, what do they do? They hide. They say, we don't know what to do. What do they hide? They take a defensive posture. See, we take a defensive posture because we're scared of getting hurt. We're scared of being vulnerable. We're scared of being exposed. And conflict's hard. It's grating. It's tense. There's, there's friction. We get emotional. We get upset. Sometimes it taps into deeper hurts or things that have happened in our past. And so what do we do? We just lock down. And we say, you know what? I'm good. I'm going to bow out. I'll I'll move on. I'll forget about it. I don't need to be friends with that person anymore. I don't need to see that person anymore. I'll be okay. But what the scripture is teaching us. Is that we have to remind ourselves, oh, I, I actually, the way I feel, the perspective I have could be flawed. There, be, there could be some gaps in the way I see things. I might be making some assumptions because maybe I don't know everything here. We have limited judgment. We're human. And so we must remind ourselves, church, that when we walk away from any disagreement, any kind of conflict, we have to remind ourselves that maybe we've gotten something wrong here. Our own judgment, it's limited. But then we're presented with a second guardrail. We see this in part of verse 4 and then 7 through 10. Let me read these to you. It says this in verse 4. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. 7 through 10 it says... For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? A quick reminder of who we actually belong to. Remember, disagreements in the church, other believers. First guardrail is that our judgment's limited, but this is a reminder here that God's judgment, our other God, our guardrail, God's judgment is supreme. So on one side, we have to remember, oh, I don't know everything. Oh, I'm I'm flawed. Oh, my information may be incomplete. Oh, I might have a different perspective than they do. And it doesn't make them uh, in sin. It doesn't mean that they're wrong or I'm right. Here's what it means. Listen, listen. God knows more than we do. His judgment isn't limited. And what this scripture first tells us is that it is before that person's master that they'll stand or fall. In other words, we are so quick to assign sin when it might not be sin. You know why? Because it makes us feel better to just say, you know what? I'm really mad at that person, so maybe they're in sin. But ultimately what the scripture teaches us, that we don't make that judgment on their salvation. That's in God's hands alone. The other thing this does for us is it really begins to put things in perspective. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. In other words, God is the supreme judge. Life and death, it's in his hands. So when we're trying to make judgments, sometimes we blow things out of proportion. Sometimes we say, oh man, this, is, this one thing that happens, it's, it's just ruined my day or it ruined my week, or it ruined my month, or it ruined my year, and I, I can't be with that person anymore, I can't be in relationship, I can't be in church, I can't sit by that person, I can't look by that person, I can't do any of this anymore, because this has just ruined everything. What the scripture's reminding us is saying, hey, chill a little. Put things in perspective. God is over the living and the dead. At the end of days, that person's gonna stand before him. So just remember It's in his hands. Now this is helpful for us because it teaches us on one side where we go, okay, my judgment's limited. It also helps us trust God to say, okay, I have limited perspective, but he doesn't. I don't know everything, but he does. And I don't know that person's heart, but he does. And so these things help us stay in line on this path to say, okay, I'm gonna pursue peace. And and this over here is gonna remind me of my weaknesses. And this over here is gonna remind me of how big and powerful and all-knowing God truly is. But the problem sometimes, too, is that we can get into this place where we go, okay, well, I'm going to take a different kind of defensive posture. On one side, you know, we're hurt and we're vulnerable, so we're just going to shut people out, and I'm just going to not deal with it. It's going to go away. It's going to go away. It's going to go away, and it doesn't. The other side, we take a different kind of defensive posture where we absolve ourselves, where we say, you know what? I don't care how that person feels. God's the judge. (laughs) And so, so we say things like, well, I'm just a blunt person. And so if your feelings are hurt, that's on you. I just speak my mind, you know? And can I just tell you, actually, um, Adam and I were talking about this. I asked him if I could say, if I could include him in this. Uh, One of my least favorite things about being a student pastor. Now there's a lot of love, okay? Love student ministry. Love working with Dylan high school students. But the one thing that makes it um, frustrating sometimes, and Adam experiences this a lot too, is we'll get calls sometimes. We'll get calls where people are going, hey, listen, I just thought you should know that this student or this person or college student or leader or whoever, they did this. So just whatever you want to do with that. I don't want to do anything with that. I want you to do something with that. Or we'll get calls and we'll say, "Hey, you should you should just know. I know this person's trying to do this or that or whatever, and they're in your ministry area, and 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 I just want you to know, like I heard from my kid or this person or that person who heard from that person or what. No, listen. What I don't want to deal with your conflict for you. If you think someone's in sin, it's your calling as a believer to go deal with it. Now, if you're sitting here and you're going, I don't really don't really have any conflict with anybody in the church. I don't really experienced that before. Well, maybe you're just not in community. Maybe you come here on a regular basis and you sit here and you're encouraged by the worship and the prayer and the message, and then you leave. And I'm just telling you, God has called you for more than that. He's given you an assembly, a group of people to do life with. And life gets hard sometimes, and you disagree sometimes, and this is part of it. So what we have to figure out is, where is the gospel in this moment? Because we're going to face conflict. Now, we have these two guardrails, and we can see how oftentimes we get defensive on both ends of the spectrum. We push people away. We don't deal with it, or we just say, I don't care whose feelings I'm going to hurt, which is a great example, listen, of how to be right and still be really wrong. The way you treat people matters to God. And Paul is teaching us this by agreeing that there is one side of this that he actually agrees with, but that's not the point. The way they're treating each other truly matters. So we get to my favorite part of this whole thing, which is if we have our guardrails, if we know that on one side, okay, our judgment's limited, so I need to be wary of my own judgment, and we know on the other side that God's got this thing and we need to trust him, what is the approach? Remember, our ability to have honest conversation in the pursuit of peace, it's a direct reflection of our faith in a sovereign God. Let's look at verse 5, verse 6. It's really simple. One verse. The one who observes the day, observes it in what? In honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats what? In honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. That's it. That's the secret. It turns out that the approach is that you believe that God has changed that person. Remember, we're talking about conflict with other believers. So what's the approach? The approach is that you step out in faith. The approach is you have honest conversations. Why? Because it's a test to say, if God's real, and if his gospel is true, then that person is doing their best to honor God just as much as I am. This is a gospel issue. Our ability to speak openly and honest with one another is a reflection of our faith in God's sovereignty. We are literally declaring when we say, okay, I I don't want to have this conversation. I don't want to say this thing out loud. I don't want to address this. I don't want to be vulnerable. What we're doing is we're saying, I don't want to do these things, but I'm going to trust that God is who he says he is. That this message is true. That the things that we read in scripture are real. You know, like we just baptized somebody. And when we baptized her, we said, okay. And buried in baptism. In other words, the old you is gone. And raised to life in newness of Christ. What we're saying when we do that is we believe God changes people, that he sets people free from sin, that he transforms their hearts and their minds. He gives them new desires and affections that in our hearts, the way we live as Jesus followers is we're just trying to do our best to honor and glorify him. Do you believe it? Do you believe scripture when it says that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive his power, that it changes us? Do you believe the scripture when it says... That when we put ourselves to death, that we receive a new self in Christ. Do you believe the scriptures? Do you? When it says that we are a new creation. Because the way that you have honest conversations with the people around you is a reflection of your faith in a sovereign God. Is he real? I think he is. Does he change people? I think he does. So I want to talk to people. I want to invite the spirit of God into my conflict. I want to invite the spirit of God into a moment of vulnerability and say, God, I'm trusting you with this. And I'm just hoping you have changed that person. And we're going to find a way to build each other up and find peace with each other. The way we pursue each other. We have to undo this posture of defense what I think the scripture is teaching us is to take on a posture of offense. And I don't mean like you're going to offend people. And I don't mean you're going to say offensive things like you're going to insult people. What I mean is a defensive posture protects you. But an offensive posture, it pursues peace. When you're offensive, you're chasing after something. There's a goal in mind. There's an end in mind. There's a strategy. There's an approach. You're saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure this person, that we're at peace, that we're going to build each other up, that we can look at each other and we can disagree on these concepts, or these ideas or these thoughts, but we can trust that God is still doing something in both of our lives and they're just trying to do what they can to honor him. It's an offensive posture. We should all be chasing after people now. There's an implication to this. And this is why as a student pastor, I care so much about as a church, how we're able to have honest conversations, not just with students, but in the home families, in community groups, in D groups. There's an implication to all of this. And we find that in verses 11 and 12. Four, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God for it's written. Ready? Ready? As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Listen, there are gospel implications. Typically, when we read this verse and we we say, oh, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. What we're talking about is God reaching the nations, and he's chosen us to do that. So listen, this is really important, okay? I want you to understand this this morning. When we take a defensive posture with each other in the church, how are we ever going to do anything different with the outside world? When we can't have honest conversations with each other, how are we ever going to have the hard conversations with the lost? If we can't pursue peace with one another, build each other up, how are we ever going to help people outside of these walls find peace with God? How? How? And when we're locking down and we're protecting ourselves and we're not being vulnerable and we're not inviting the spirit of God into these issues, they can see it. They see it. The lost, they see us. They see how we treat each other. They see how we talk about one another. They see how we fall apart and how we fight. I'm just telling you, if you want to have any chance of reaching this area, this city, this world for Christ. It's going to start with how we treat one another. Church, I'm begging you to be vulnerable with one another, to pursue one another. Because if we continue to be defensive towards one another, all we're going to do as a church, we, we, I really think we'll be ineffective in trying to reach the lost. Because here's why. We will hunker down and we'll be defensive. And we'll we'll hold off the outside world because we're going to say, you know what? We just want to protect what's ours. We want to protect our values. We want to protect our rights. And so we're just going to hold the line. We're just going to protect. And I'm just here to tell you the only thing, the way things change is when we go after people and they experience the goodness of God. So what I'm asking you to do is to have honest conversations with one another because you're inviting the spirit of God in between two people who know him. So that our posture changes and we begin, listen, to step outside of the church and go after people. To invite the Spirit of God into the relationships with the lost. And this is why an event like Winter Weekend is so important. Because it's an intersection of these two things. I mean, we inundate students with the gospel for three days. We preach the word, we pray, we sing songs, but we put them in an environment... Where they talk honestly and openly about what God's doing. And a lot of that is going to be between believers. A lot of that is going to be students putting things to rest that they've been dealing with with each other. But there's also going to be law students there. And they're going to see what God's doing. And we're going to preach the gospel. And we're going to give them a chance to respond to it. But what I find more often than not, listen to me, is it's not necessarily what happens in the big room, but it's the conversations happening in the groups that really gets a hold of the lost students in the room. So church, I'm I'm begging you to set the standard for the next generation. Teach them by example how to have honest conversations, how to pursue peace, how to step out in faith and trust that God is real and his gospel is true. And so I'm going to invite the spirit of God into the hard things in my life. I think when we begin to do that, we will begin to see our prayers answered and lives changed. Do you believe? Do you believe God is who he says he is? Do you believe he truly changes people? then if you do, you will have the honest conversations. You will step out in faith. You'll stop hiding. You'll stop stiff-arming. You'll stop pushing away. And you'll with open arms say, I give up rights, responsibilities, and I'm inviting the spirit of God in my life to mend these relationships, to heal this conflict. When that happens, we will see God move. Let's pray. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.